Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. More than a maker. More than an athlete. More than a pastor. Chata Elifinachili. I am Choctaw proud. We are the Choctaw Nation, and together we're more. You are stronger than we. We have fought you so long as we had rifles and powder, but your arms are better than ours. Give us like weapons and turn us loose. We will fight you again, but we are worn out. We have no more heart. We have no provisions, no means to live. Your troops are everywhere. Our springs and waterholes are either occupied or overlooked by your young men. You have driven us from our last and best stronghold, and we have no more hearts. Do with as may seem good to you, but do not forget we are men and braves. Those were the words of Mescalero Chief Cadet to General Carleton in 1863. I'm very much excited to be with author and former guest W. Michael Farmer in this three-part series. Today, we'll start with book one of three, Killer of Witches, The Life and Times of Yellow Boy, Mescalero Apache. We'll follow the journey of Yellow Boy, which begins in 1865 and travels through the year 1951. During this time, the Apaches went from nomadic horse-mounted raiders and hunters to wide-eyed prisoners of war and residents of reservations, and then to proud independent people making their own way in the white man's world. This is a story that's considered the truth told along with fiction in a time when the Apache way of life was being threatened by the overtaking of Americans who were migrating west and the terrors on the dark side in this life, witches and other evil spirits in the flesh that still had to be destroyed to enter the next life unscathed. Michael, welcome again to Native Chalk Talk. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thank awesome. you. Absolutely. So I enjoyed working with you on season three, episode eight, when we discussed the life and times of Geronimo, and you've done extensive research on the Apache. And when I read this trilogy, I found myself having so many like, aha moments. You know, we've seen all the cowboys and Indian shows and movies that are primarily focused on the white folks characters. And often there's just natives coming in and out of the woodwork to attack the settlers, but there's no story behind why they're attacking usually and no explanation of the culture. So what I really enjoyed about these books is they're a historical fiction story about the Apaches and culture and mission and the uh, non-natives are the ones that come in and out of the picture. So the roles are kind of reversed, which I thought was interesting. So we get to experience more of the why and how and backstories around the lives of the tribe. And in these episodes, listeners, you'll hear a historical fiction story, but you'll also learn a lot about the Mescalero Apache. 
A disclaimer for our listeners today, these books and these episodes do contain realistic depictions of historic actions and events that do include violence. They're certainly not G-rated, so listener discretion is advised. Before we get started on our story, I have a few questions. First off, most people know the Apache as the Apache, but listeners will hear us talk about the Mescalero Apache. Um, would you help us understand there's the Eastern and Western Apache, correct? Sure. The, the best way that I have found to think about Apache bands is to use the Rio Grande as the primary uh, dividing line between the Eastern and the Western Apaches. By the time of this story, the Comanche, Kiowa, and Kiowa Apaches had driven the Plains Apaches, with a few notable exceptions, west of the Pecos River, uh, which formed the, the Pecos formed the eastern boundary for the eastern Apaches. Between these two rivers were the Hickorya Apaches, the Mescaleros, and often the Lipans, who are considered Eastern Apaches. West of the Rio Grande were the Membranos, also known as the Cahini uh, or Warm Spring Apaches. Uh, and they live mainly in New Mexico on the other side of the Membrano Mountains, also known as the Black Range. And Past the Black Range were the Chiricahua that included the Betacoe, uh, who was uh, a, a small band. It was Geronimo's original band, the Choconan, which were Cochise's people, and the Nedney to the south, who lived mostly in Mexico and were led uh, in the times of this story by a, a great war chief named Quo. And the Western Apache, even further to the West, uh, that included the Arriva Pie, the White Mountains, the Cibicu, the San Carlos, and the Tontos. And this is, this is all really a uh, somewhat of an arbitrary uh, uh, set of names that the, that the Mexicans gave to, uh, to those various bands but uh, they've kind of stuck over the last couple of centuries. Yeah, and I think it's interesting for listeners who may have, sometimes they'll hear White Mountain Apache or they'll hear the Chiricahua Apache. And I know for me, sometimes I've gotten mixed up as to wait, what, how was the association there? But this makes so much more sense when you put it plainly like this for us. So how influential were the Mexicans on the Apache, you think? Well, the, the, the primary influence that the Mexicans had on the Apaches were the, uh, were the weapons and uh, their whiskey-making uh, ability. And the Apaches uh, loved to raid the, uh, the Mexicans for uh, food and supplies. That was, but they, and, and I should say that uh, they were fond of stealing their children to, uh, to raise as Apaches. They're fond of stealing their children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I noticed that a lot of the characters, both fictional and historical, some of them are say Apache, but they have kind of Hispanic sounding names. So it seems like there's kind of like a, as with anything, there was kind of a meddling of the two cultures together a little bit. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the Apaches were actually proud of those, uh, 
of those uh, Mexican names because it meant that they had, had so frightened the, uh, the people that they were raiding that they could pick out the individual raiders and uh, uh, refer to them by, by a given name. And so for an Apache, a, a Mexican name like Geronimo was a badge of honor. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't bad at all. In fact, uh, in Geronimo's uh, prime, uh, his own people called it Geronimo. Hmm. Interesting. So I mentioned these books are based on a true story. Who is the story based on? Uh, it's it's uh, in this book a child named uh, Henry Fountain who uh, in 1896 uh, in uh, New Mexico territory faced a tragedy in his life. He uh, saw his father murdered. And as far as the record goes, disappeared and never to be found after his father was murdered. Uh, although about half the country uh, was, was looking for him. Hmm. And I I'll might start. also mention that his father vanished too, but there was just too much blood around the place where they turned off the road that uh, the, the territory at least was uh, certain that he had been murdered. Wow. Yeah, no surprise there then. So I'll, I'll stop there about Henry since I don't want to give away too many spoilers. Listeners are probably Googling Henry Fountain right now, but <laughs> and how was Henry Fountain's story preserved? Was his story a legend passed around through the generations or did he write a book about his life or what? Well, he, uh, he wrote down the story of his life uh, in, in uh, the way I tell the tale you know, in journals. And after he was finished, uh, he read it back to, uh, to his mentor and, and uh, close friend, Yellow Boy, and uh, decided that he needed to write down Yellow Boy's story also. And so uh, they spent months on weekends when he came up from Las Cruces to, uh, to uh, have Yellow Boy tell him what happened in his life. If only we had had native chalk talk back then. Yeah, that would, have, that would have simplified things considerably. Absolutely, I'm all about that preservation. But at least they did. He did record that he had the uh, foresight to go. I need to write this down. That's really cool. So many of our characters in this book are based on real people and their stories, such as the Apache chiefs and the American scouts and some others. And I like in the beginning of the book, you've listed a sort of glossary of Apache words and meanings that are used throughout, as well as the names of the characters. So the readers can easily refer back to that information. And I referred back several times. So thank you. So the name of our character, Yellow Boy, is named after a certain object that most people are familiar with, but I won't spoil the meaning for those who don't know what it is yet. And you'll find out later, I promise. There's also a handy dandy map that I'll post on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page so listeners can get a sense of where these events took place. By the way, listeners, in order to fit everything into each episode, I've significantly reduced the details from the books. I've left out some super dramatic details that you have to get the books to experience. So do go out and get them for yourself. Trust me, you'll thank me later. They also make good gifts too. So these episodes will be a bit different than my typical Native Chalk Talk shows. 
So sit back and enjoy story time as Michael and I share the fascinating and at times heart pounding stories of Yellow Boy and of his tribe, the Mescalero Apache. This book is from the perspective of Yellow Boy. So when you hear quotes with the words I or me, for instance, you'll know it's Yellow Boy who's speaking. So where does Yellow Boy's story begin, Michael? Well, it starts at uh, Bosque Redondo, New Mexico Territory, uh, the 30th of October, 1865. Uh, Bosque Redondo, it started out basically as a reservation for the Mescalero Apaches, but uh, after uh, Kit Carson conquered the uh, the uh, Navajo and uh, sent them on that that uh, long desperate march to Bosque Redondo, uh, it it became very very crowded, and so uh, the the Rio the Rio Pecos made an almost circular loop around a big stand of trees. And hence the place was called Round Woods or Bosque Redondo in, in Spanish. The Rio Pecos had a had a high alkali content. Uh, I I think it may still if you uh, if you get up uh, up north of Bosque Redondo, but uh, it was the primary source of water. If you drank from it, it could make you sick. Oh. Uh, there was a good swath of farmland for field and garden crops. And uh, the Mescaleros spent most of the first year digging irrigation ditches to water their, uh, their field crops. And the field return from that first crop was, was really good. But after that, their crops were destroyed by everything from frost to insects to hail to wind. Mm. And it was so bad that the Navajo... Uh, after they saw what was happening to uh, to those crops, uh, and they were forced on the same land as as the Apaches, thought that the land was cursed and didn't even attempt to plant crops. Wow! Uh, the Mescaleros had been told Bosque Redondo would be their their reservation, but then uh, when uh, the thousands of Navajo uh, who surrendered to Kit Carson came as POWs to Bosque Redondo. They just didn't have the resources uh, to uh, support that many people. By 1865, when uh, Yellow Boy was about five years old, the women were being taken by a wagon about 18 miles uh, out into the Llano to dig up mesquite roots for firewood. Carlton wouldn't even let the Mescaleros uh, hunt or uh, harvest uh, desert plants, which the Apaches were fond of eating, uh, uh, for food. Uh, and by 1865, the army couldn't provide the starving Apaches and the Navajos a quarter of what they had been promised as rations. Uh, and it's it's really kind of understandable. It was the end of the Civil War. The South was on its knees. Its people were starving. Washington looked west and saw this uh, this uh, group of, of uh, Aboriginal people uh, living out in the wilderness. And so, who do you think got the food? Uh, yeah. Cadet 
told the post commander several times that if the Apaches, that the Apaches would leave if conditions didn't improve, they didn't, and the Apaches left. 500 in one night. And they were sitting right next to uh, Fort Sumner, which had uh, a large number of, uh, of soldiers there to, uh, to guard them. Hmm. So side note, the Mescalero Apaches are known as the people of the woods, right? Yeah, the uh, they they call themselves the Shish Inde, which means people of the woods. I, that's why why is that? Because I don't picture that area where they were as wooded very much, right? Well, the the Mescaleros actually lived in the Sacramento Mountains after they uh, after they got driven off of the plains, and uh, you oh. know that's that's a very forested area, and uh, they were happy to be there until the cavalry and and uh, army troops uh, came along to uh, conquer them and, and uh, run them off. Oh. Okay, that makes a whole lot more sense now. Listener. Okay, so at this point in time, the White Eyes or non-natives were holding the Mescalero Apache as prisoners of war on the Bosque Redondo Reservation. And when Yellow Boy was only five years old, a chief came to speak with his father, whose name was Caballo Negro, which means black horse. By the way, Yellow Boy at the time was called Ishkene, which means boy. And his true name had not been given to him yet, which is a common act among many tribes who would give their children their long-term names later in their lives. Anyway, during a meeting in the Ragged Family TP, the chief and Yellow Boy's father talked in a hushed tone about how the Mescalero Apache were crafting a plan to leave Bosque Redondo. So what was the plan, according to Yellow Boy's dad? Well, Caballo Negro told uh told his wife and Ishkenay after uh, Cadet left the teepee that uh, first of all, uh, they were all going to leave on the same night. Uh, they were all going to go in small groups in many different directions. So the army uh, had to choose which ones uh, they would go after and uh, the rest would, would surely get away. And uh, as the book, has uh, uh, Caballo Negro saying, when we leave, families will go in small groups in many different directions. Cadet says it's best to go south to the camp of Cha, the brother of Cadet Santana and Roman. Uh, with Cha, I can raid the Nakii villages and ranches along the Great River and the wagons on the Inda Road. Bayo Negro will be a man again, a warrior, not a slave. He frowned and stared at us so we would not forget what he said next. There are Indah spies in the camp. Don't speak of leaving to anyone. A spy hears you and will have to fight our way out rather than slip away. So there are spies, so they need to look out. Uh, now the Inda, what what are the Inda? The Inda are uh, basically anybody that are not Apaches, and they usually referred to uh, referred to Inda as uh, as the whites because uh, 
there were so many of them. They actually called themselves Inde, which means dead, uh, because the Inda whites, which were uh, living, Inda means uh, life or living, uh, were able to uh, so overrun their land that the Apaches really weren't wild and free like they were at one time. And so they, uh, they, they considered themselves dead. And uh, uh, that's, that's uh, what really uh, uh, made a difference for them. So Inde and Inda, two different right. things. And we right. can think of Inda probably the easiest as being the white folks. So, so why did the Apache want to leave that reservation? Well, uh, let me uh, let me quote from the book again. Uh, and again, this is Caballo Negro uh, talking with, uh, with his wife, Sanciria, and his his son Ishkene. He says, "Now the now the Inda tell us where we can go and when." They won't even let us hunt. They give us less and less to eat. The Enda made us give our land to the Navajos after we worked like slaves, digging ditches for water and planting seeds. Though we were here first. The meat the Enda give us is no good. It makes us sick. The blankets we are given are thin and cold, not thick and warm like those of the Inda or the Nakiis, i.e. the Mexicans. There's some bitterness there that they've given their land to the Navajo. And so did the Apache and the Navajo at that time, did they cross paths very much? Uh, not not uh, really. They were actually, uh, according to ethnologists, they're, they're about first cousins. Uh, an Apache can hear and Navajo speak, and he can pretty much understand everything said. That's because they both speak uh, from a, a root language, Athabascan. However, uh, uh, when they when they uh, got down to the nitty gritty, the Navajos thought of themselves as uh, as free raiders, and that was one reason why Kit Carson went after them. Uh, uh, they were stealing a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, property from the Apaches, and so they uh, they had some really uh, pretty fierce battles mm. in those days. You can read about them in the uh, the book by Cremoni. I think it's called the Apache. Oh, pretty easy then. And what's yeah. the author's name again? Cremoni, C R E M O N Y. Okay. Very interesting. So the time came for the Mescalero to leave. Yellow Boy was awakened in the teepee by his mother in the early morning hours. And the book reads, it was dark and cold and the air was filled with much dust and the sounds of many shuffling feet and horses and mules snorting and stamping their hooves. Why don't we ride the horses instead of running? She, his mother whispered, they're too weak to go far if we ride. For three or four days, they must have their fill of grass and only carry a little weight. Then they'll be strong enough to ride. Now you must be very quiet until your father returns. If the blue coats hear us, they'll try to chase us back or kill us if we fight. 
it's pretty heavy stuff to have to tell a child. So during the second night of running, the family headed south toward the camp of Cha. The moon had barely moved when Caballo Negro held up his hand for us to stop. He tied off the horses in a small grove of pinions, took me down, and spoke to my mother and me in a low voice. What did his father say? Do you smell the wood smoke? The wagon tracks in front of us say there maybe there's a ranch on the other side of the ridge. A ranch means horses and food. Maybe I can take some and we will run no more, eh, woman? Caballo Negro took his bow and quiver of arrows and disappeared into the night, running up the ridge. We heard a small pop in the distance, a rifle shot, and then another and another. A woman screamed. I thought at first it was the cougar's war cry, like we sometimes heard near Bosque Redondo. But soon I understood it was a woman's cry of fear. There was another pop, and then no more. We heard horses running across the ridge before we saw Caballo Negro in the moonlight. He led six horses and rode with a saddle on the, set, on the seventh one. A large feed sack filled with supplies and several blankets rolled and tied on the back of the saddle. He rode up to my mother and me and slid off, uh, off the saddle smiling. Woman, we will no longer shiver under the thin blankets. We will ride fast and far. These are good, strong ponies. I killed him with two arrows. Then his woman came out screaming, trying to take the rifle and shoot some more. She looked weak and sick. I decided she would not last as a slave for you, so I killed her with another arrow. I took only the best horses from the corral and left the others. With those horses left in the corral, it might take a while for other white eyes to realize the ranch didn't accidentally catch on fire. Maybe the end I will never understand this was an Apache raid. First off, I love that he calls her woman, but you never want to take a weak and sick woman along, so <laughs> decides to kill her yeah. instead, you know. They were eminently practical. Very much so. And I think it's a good time to point out here that it was kill or be killed. The well-being of your family and mm. your tribe, that was all that mattered at any cost. And so anyway, that's interesting. So as the days and travel went on, the family was joined by another family from the tribe. And there was a sense of happiness that yellow boy would have friends to play with. And then they came up on the Mescalero chief named Cha. Yeah, they, uh, the, the path they were taking led up into the Guadalupe Mountains, which are right on the, uh, the border between Texas and New Mexico and about 100 miles east of El Paso. And uh, when, they, when they finally found uh, Cha, uh, Yellow Boy said, upon seeing Cha, Caballo Negro said, Diante. Cha, brother of Santana, Roman, and Cadet. I am the warrior Caballo Negro. We ask to join you. We've suffered many seasons at the hands of the Inda at the place on the river to the east and north called Bosque Redondo. All Mescaleros at the Bosque left there for five sons ago. The blue coats do not follow. Cadet goes to Santana. 
He said, you wanted more warriors. Do you want us or must we move on? Thankfully, Cha generously welcomed the Mescalero and two boys near Yellow Boy's age were new friends, Ka, which means arrow, and Kodo or firefly. The family also met a couple that would make an impact on their lives. Your book says an older couple, he watches, and his wife, Socorro, sheltered and fed us as if we were invited guests. Cha's people had given Socorro her name because she knew how to take corn and make the best Tiswin of anyone in the band. Tiswin is a weak beer. So he watches and Socorro asks Caballo Negro if they might adopt Sonsi Are as their daughter and thereby attached his family to their lodge. So basically they became Yellow Boy's grandparents. He watches often rode a big red mule stolen in El Paso up the steep path to the ridge top where he watched the wagon road for dust plumes in the far bright distance, telling of new supplies coming or more blue coats coming for his warriors to kill for rifles and ammunition. So after he studied a dust plume, sometimes for hours with a brass telescope he called Shinaacho or Big Eye, he sent a boy running back to camp with word that supplies and booty were coming for the taking. Yellow Boy was growing and his dad and he watches decides it's time for him to use a bow and arrow. So tell us what they taught him. Well, they, they gave him a bow and uh, he watches also gave him a, uh, gave him his first knife, which I think he carried uh, all his days. But uh after these gifts were given to him, his, his father had a heart-to-heart uh, uh, -heart talk with him, and he said, in hunting, you must go very carefully and make no noise with your feet against stones or grass. Like the cougar, you must move slyly, carefully, and with much patience. Rise before tomorrow's sun comes. Run. Do this every day. Begin by running to the bottom of the canyon trail before you return. I loved so, this part because it was, uh, there's a lot more to it that I cut out, a ton of details I cut out where they were working with him and giving him good advice and telling him how to, you know, if he had to stand somewhere for hours or sit there for hours waiting for the right timing for uh, to kill his prey or to do a raid, then that's what he must do. There was so much of that good stuff in the book. So you guys just have to get the book to read all of that. Well, the time came for the younger boys to prove their place as future warriors. So Yellow Boy, his father, Caballo Negro, and five other men and their sons came together for this trial. Caballo Negro said, you who now take this long journey do well learning how to fight, hunt, and make war. You want to become warriors. Prove you are men. In this trial, prove your skill and stamina, and you will come with us as apprentices. The fastest among you might finish this run in four, maybe five sons. Eat nothing, drink only water for the first two sons, and after two sons, eat whatever you can catch or find. Follow your pony's path back to the camp. Run only at night hide and rest in the day each warrior knows where to start his son we ride so caballo negro speaks to ishkane where he's left nearly a hundred miles from home to find his way back and so he watches says to ishkane return from this trial and your name will become nakayen which means keen-sighted 
So this was the new name he would take on as a mature young man. So true to his word, Caballo Negro left me an easy to follow trail, even in the dark. I followed it across rough country filled with brushy flats, deep arroyos, and rolling hills with flat tops covered with grandma grass, mesquite, yucca, and creosote bushes. Nakayen does as he's told and sleeps hidden away from a nearby water hole during the day. When the sun was passing halfway from the top of its arc into the edge of night, my heart began to pound. At the bottom of the hill, two Indas, the white men, in trader clothes, and a blue coat soldier sat on their horses studying the trail left by Caballo Negro and talking among themselves. One of the Inda led a mule loaded with supplies. Tied across the pack frame along with the supplies was my friend Ka, one of the other boys running home. So Michael, in the next few paragraphs coming up, I realized how alarming this whole test was. It, it was no joke. And these young boys were put out there to face whatever came at them and they could have died. So again, a point in the world that it was kill or be killed. You become the best of the best at survival or you will die. And you better learn it young because they're putting you out there young too, right? Yeah, that that's, that's all true. The, the test was, uh, uh, you know, they, they lived in the uh, Guadalupe Mountains and their fathers put them on a horse, carried them south a hundred miles to the uh, uh, Davis Mountains. And there they, uh, they put them off at different spots. And their job was to, uh, to be able to, uh, to get back on their own over that 100 miles. And naturally, the fathers try to make it easy for them by leaving a nice little horse trail for them to follow back. And that was what was happening with uh, 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 Yellow Boy. And Caballo Negro. Now, the purpose of the test was to demonstrate that the boys could find their way back home if they got separated from the warriors who were taking them on raids as novitiates. They had to remember the shape of the mountain uh, range outline as they went home, mm -hmm. where the water holes were, and how to live off the land. If they couldn't do that, they weren't any use to the fighting men and would quickly be taken prisoner or die. And so yeah. uh, uh, that was that was the way it was. You had to prove yourself that you were ready to uh, to serve the warriors four times, and then uh, maybe they might let you go out as a as a full blown warrior. And of course, there was honor in that too. It wasn't just about. Uh, you know, you. I would look at that and go, no, thanks. I'm okay. <laughs> Just let me stay back with the women and stuff. But for them, they were itching to do this. They, this was part of their manhood, part of their respect yeah. that they would get from their tribe. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that the girls, uh, after the, uh, after the uh, Apache children reached about, uh, eight or nine years old, maybe 10, the girls and the boys separated. They didn't play together anymore. Oh, really? And uh, uh, a girl knew that she had become a woman in her first menarch. And that was that was absolutely a, a great moment for the Apaches because it meant a, a, 
woman uh, had come into their midst who could bear children for them. The boys, on the other hand, didn't really have uh, anything like that. And so they had to prove themselves in uh, raids and uh, in wars. Hmm. And so uh, uh, when uh, uh, I'll call him Naki in, uh, uh, found and, and freed his friend from the from the blue coat and white eye scouts. Uh, he says he he tells how he uh, how he did it. He says I crept close enough to the dying fire to see two bodies wrapped in blankets lying near it, and Ka with no blanket, his hands tied behind him, the end of the rope running from his hands tying his feet together and then to the tall scout who wrapped it around his wrist. The blue coat snored nearby. So Yellow Boy uh, uh, looks for the, for the third uh, white eye, the third end eye, uh, and he finds him out close to, uh, close to where the mule is grazing. Uh, and he attacks uh, the scout uh, after uh, after uh, he thought the mule had wandered away. And the old boy says, I'm not even, I'm not sure he even saw me rise off the ground like a shadow before I stuck the point of my long blade into his windpipe and slashed to the right. He opened his mouth to scream, but only gurgled, drowning in his own blood as he collapsed, sitting down and then falling backwards his head barely attached to his body. I felt the drops of warm blood shower my face and body. I had killed my first man. With the night and the surprise on my side, it had been easy. However, I felt no joy in killing the scout. Rather, it was more relief that now I had only two others with whom to deal. And so he creeps back to the camp to take care of the other scout in the blue coat. The blue coat uh, continued to snore, his right hand resting on his revolver. The scout's blankets were thrown aside. He was nowhere in sight, and his weapons were gone. I froze. A few yards away, I heard a cough, and the tall scout hawked, phlegm, and spat. Like wind, I was at the blue coat's blankets. His eyes fluttered open, but it was but I was too quick for him and quickly cut his throat. At the fire, the scout checked the knots on the rope holding Cobb before he crawled under his blanket and pulled his big revolver to hold against his chest before he lay back. Cobb was watching him and saw me come. I killed the big scout as I had the blue coat. This time Cobb looking on and smiling. He found his knife sheathed in the belt of the tall Linda and pulled the clothes from the body as I washed the blood spatters from my face and hands and arms with sand. We needed to get the blood off our bodies because when the sun came up and the blood had warmed, it would stink and call buzzard to follow us, a sure pointer for prying eyes. Okay, do y'all see what I mean? I mean, this is hardcore stuff. I mean, how old was Yellow Boy even at this point? Uh, he was about 16. Okay. Still pretty young, but 
oh my God, I can't imagine as a mom sending my son out to try to become a warrior. It would just, oh man, you have to hope you have a girl back then, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, in, in the Apache culture, uh, girls were usually considered at least as important as as the boys and maybe more so because uh, they were the producers of the of the tribe you know yeah right wow so thankfully he finds Ka and I bet Ka was good to see him uh, it says as I cut the ropes binding him Ka shook his head I'm a fool. I didn't do what my father told me, and I ran in the daytime. I thought if I returned first, no one would care if I had disobeyed his instructions. After running north and riding the white eye horses, Yellow Boy and Ka returned to camp, excited to tell the story of how he had killed three Inda with a knife and rescued his friend. His father was proud and gave him a new name, Nakayen. However, I'll continue to call him Yellow Boy for uniformity's sake, and you'll see why I call him Yellow Boy later on. So something that was pretty common with a lot of tribes, as with the Apache, was raids. Tell us about the raids and why they typically did them. Well, Apache raids were, were different than Apache war. Raids were made for food and other supplies, and it was really rare that they killed anyone on a raid because they wanted the victims to prosper uh, in the next growing season so they could come back again and get a good supply of food. Mm -hmm. War was different. It was usually done out of revenge or self-defense, and it was rare that people didn't die. Yeah, that makes sense. And now Yellow Boy will face his first raid. He watches noticed freight wagons drawn by mules stirring up the dust along the White Eye Road running from San Antonio to El Paso. So why don't you read to us about that raid? Okay, just just a little uh, uh, background. They they had picked out a uh, part of the trail that ran between two hills, and on each hill they uh, they were going to have uh, uh, men shooting, but they also uh, planted uh, a series of, uh, of shooters down next to the road, and and they dug. Uh, pitch to hide in and covered up with uh, blankets. The Apaches uh, very rarely fought an enemy or did a raid head on. It was always, always from ambush. And so uh, the, the book reads, before dawn, our raiding party left the camp by twos and threes and rode out of the mountains and down many scattered trails through the Yano brush to avoid raising dust plumes that might warn approaching freighters. The Apaches set up an ambush for the freighters in one day. Early the next day, they prepared to attack. Caballo Negro had taught me to put stripes of black charcoal powder mixed with a little fat under my eyes and across the bridge of my nose to lessen the glare. And this lesson, like so many others, had become a second nature ingrained as part of the ritual preparation for a raid. Down the road in the shimmering distance, dust, the kind wagons made, rose high in the still shimmering air. 
And uh, as part of the ambush, Yellow Boy was to hide in the brush along the road and help kill the wagon drivers and guards with his bow and arrows. He had not been on raid before and didn't, and didn't yet have a firearm. And he says, my heart thumping, I pulled my bow from its sheath and rising to my knees, strung it. I pulled four arrows tipped with iron points from my quiver, checked each point, laid one arrow across the bow and held the others under the fingers of my left hand, gripping the bow's handle. The wagons arrive at the ambush site and the warriors begin taking care of business. I bent my bow to my arms full length and the sinew bindings around that arrowhead rough, rubbing the top of my forefinger. I made a small step to the right for a clear shot and paused to steady my body and released the arrow, the whispering bowstring slapping my wrist protector and a solid snapping sound. The arrow streaked uh, forward straight and true, striking the outrider with a solid thump a little below his armpit, slicing through his chest and punching through to the other side, the arrow head pinning his arm to his side, making no sound, limp and empty like a drained water platter. The rider slumped off his horse, dead before he hit the sand. Warriors sprang out of the pits next to the road, firing rifles and bows. They killed the lead mule, starting to race forward, and then turned their fire on the wagon drivers, who were frantically trying to make the mules run forward. But the mules were balking, smelling the blood of their brothers, confused by the poor, by the roar and smoke of rifles and screams of the Apaches running for them. I sent arrows into two of the drivers. Deadly fire poured into the wagons, leaving big splintered filled holes with bullets passing through the wagon boxes, where a few surviving drivers and their passengers took shelter before they died hiding behind the wood. Only one man left the wagons. He desperately tried to run back down the road until he collapsed on it the arroyo bank against its light brown sand. Bloody wounds scattered across his back. I saw an indar rise from the third wagon, sight his rifle, and fire it to Bayo Negro. Continuing to sight the rifle in place, the shooter in the space of half a breath levered another round, but before he pulled the trigger, my arrow struck him in the side of his head. His eyes bulged as life left him like a startled bird taking wing. His hands froze around his rifle, and he fell backwards across the wagon seat. Caballo Negro shook his rifle toward me in thanks. The warriors walked among the Indas ready to cut throats of those still alive. The wagon train had been hauling supplies such as I had seen in trading posts and stores in the land of the Nakis. There were bolts of cloth, canned goods, sweet candy, tobacco, grain, and many heavy pieces of iron tools used to scratch in gardens made in this hard, dusty land. The warriors loaded the mules with all the supplies they could carry. Man, that was intense. 
And now we have a special moment in the story. Yellow Boy's father found a rifle among the spoils. And the rifle's lever fit into a yellow or what some may call gold medal. So a Comanche had carried a rifle like this and called it Yellow Boy. So, aha, hold on to that thought, listeners. Yellow Boy. <laughs> so the book goes on to say, we left the dead in the naked and smeared with blood where they fell. After taunts by Cha and a few other warriors that they didn't have stomachs to be warriors, Ka and Kodo mutilated several bodies. Caballo Negro watched, shook his head, and said to me, never do that unless there is a useful purpose. Men enter the land of the grandfathers carrying only the marks of their death, not the way their bodies are butchered after their ghosts leave. Only weak men do such things to please themselves. Ghosts of the dead repay disrespect. It is an evil thing to suffer the dead's revenge. Cha makes a mistake teaching Ka and Kodo to do this. Remember what I tell you. Was either one of those typically the Apache way to respect the dead or on the other hand to disrespect the dead by taunting their bodies? Well, depending on the tribe, but the Mescaleros in particular didn't like to handle the dead. Mm. They believed that all kinds of bad things could happen to them, like uh, something they called ghost sickness where the ghost uh, of, the, of the deceased came back and, uh, and really did bad things to them. If, ah. they, if they did uh, handle a body, if a body was mutilated, those doing it knew they were taking a big risk and usually uh, did it only out of revenge. Torture was another thing. It was done to the living often in hopes of finding a worthy enemy. Mm. Okay, interesting. I mean, that's something I didn't know about the Apache. And of course, the men upon returning were greeted with songs as they brought the new goods to the camp, followed by victory dancing and drumming. And the book goes on to say, the fierce dance began. When a man's name was called, he left the group of the dancers, moved into the open space closer to the fire and danced alone, reenacting his bravery in the raid. Then before returning to the warriors in the dance, he left the circle of light and returned with what he would give away. He put the gifts on the east side of the fire opposite the drummers and singers and told the people to help themselves. I left the men in the outer circle of warriors to dance next to the fire in its brightest orange and yellow light, my feet pounding the dust and pulling an imaginary bow and making the worst war face as I released my arrows. As a new shift of drummers took up the beat, the men left the circle and sat down and a new dance began, the wheel dance. Single women formed in pairs and made a spoke wheel rotating east to west around the fire. Once the wheel was turning, each pair of women took turns leaving the fire to tap the men they wanted for dancing partners. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all eyes are now on Yellow Boy, who again at the time they were calling Nakayet. He spots Deer Woman, named because of her large doe-like eyes, uh, who he's had on his mind for a very long time. And she was hanging out with a girl named Juanita. And those two had shared the same haje ceremony two years earlier. So tell us about the haje. Well, the haje was a, a big four-day ceremony the Mescaleros used to celebrate the, the arrival of a new woman. I, the girl had her 
and her menart. And the possibility of more children added to the band, it was, it was a big thing. They made uh, a huge uh, uh, teepee out of four trees that they uh, 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 leaned together. Uh, they usually had uh, three or four uh, medicine men uh, uh, doing the doing the ceremonies, and uh, uh, as as I say, it lasted four days. The last day, the girl of the, of the ceremony became someone that, uh, depending on on the tribe, was called white painted woman, hmm. and her spirit is said to uh, or was thought to ascend to the heavens to be with. Usen, uh, the great uh, Apache creator god, for the day, and uh, she could bestow his blessings on others who asked for them during the time of her ascent. When the hahe was complete, the girl was assumed ready for marriage, but it was her choice to make, and most waited until they were 15 to 20 years of age. That's what I was going to ask you next, what the typical age was for marriage. So, okay. Older was, than I thought. It was, <laughs> it was, it was not unusual for a, uh, 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 13 or 14 year old girl to marry, especially if she was, if she was physically well developed, but, uh, it was, it was really pretty rare. Yeah. Well, this ceremony makes it all seem fun. I don't think most women get to have those kinds of ceremonies, but anyway, I'll digress on that. So as they're doing the will dance, yellow boy spots dear woman smiling at him. He got ready to stand once she came towards him to tap his shoulder, but instead of tapping him, she walks right past him to an older boy named Delgadito. So yeah, she, she, she disses yellow boy. It's so sad. Uh, but lo and behold, he feels a tapping on his shoulder and it's Juanita. And so begins their love story. Although I don't know if love story is really the way to describe it. I mean, pairing up with a mate was much more about survival back then than about love, right? Uh, yeah, the, the Apache view of marriage was that it was a partnership. And each partner had their specific duties and neither could survive without the other. The man was clearly in charge, but he consulted closely with his wife if he thought uh, her wise and knowledgeable about something that required a decision. In Apache culture, respect for your partner was more important than love. Love was often a part of a marriage relationship, but not unusual if it was not. Survival and children were the most important things in life. But survival always came first, and there there are stories and uh, records where uh, Apaches uh, with women and uh, who had babies uh, had to had to get away from the uh, cavalry or the or the uh, soldiers, and they couldn't do that if uh, if a baby cried, and so they killed them. They just fled. Uh, uh, choked them. They would kill their own children. Yep, they would if, oh if they God. didn't. If they weren't, if they weren't uh, uh, developed enough to know to be quiet, then they. Oh my they God! Couldn't they couldn't uh, risk carrying them with them? 
and they could leave them behind, but they knew that if they did, they would wind up uh, probably being slaves. And some of the mothers actually killed their own children because they couldn't bear the idea of a, uh, of a child being a, a slave to, to an endive. So in a sense, it was a bit of mercy. They thought they, they were doing what was best for the child. Like when a horse breaks its leg and then <clears throat> you kill the horse, not to not that children are horses but yeah. back then again it's all about survival and doing what's best for the tribe i use the word cavalry interchangeably with soldiers but in fact there were a lot of foot soldiers uh there in, in the uh, in the apache wars okay yeah interesting so thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so that night, as Yellow Boy thought about the dance and being rejected by Dear Woman, he thought about her choice, Delgadito. He thought Delgadito was not reluctant to tell stories about the Mexican women he took, often brutally after raids across the Great River. Shame, shame. Sounds like we need to keep an eye on Delgadito. Anyway, so Yellow Boy's dad tells him to tell Juanita his intentions after a season. He also warns him to stay out of the bushes with her and to be a man of honor. Good dad advice. But then he tells Yellow Boy a little something about Delgadito. What does he say? Uh, in their in their talk about Delgadito and Dear Woman, Caballo Negro told Yellow Boy. He talked to your friend in your boyhood days, dear woman, into the bushes the other night after they danced. Sons Na and his wife drank too much tiswin to watch her. She was eager like a mare in heat and didn't take much convincing. I hear Delgadito laughs with his friends and says, dear woman expects he will marry her now because she wore him out in the bushes. Maybe wife number two, but not the first ever, he says. Dang, stay away from those bushes, y'all. <laughs> the bushes. Wow. So my oh my, how the plot thickens. So there's actually a lot more to that story with Dagadito and Dear Woman. So listeners, go grab the book to find out the details. It's super juicy. But big news, y'all. One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a new writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. This course is going to show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality, authentic stories, learn practical approaches to researching Native cultures, and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, so I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com, but don't forget to use the code CHOCKTALK, C-H-O-C-T-A-L when you're checking out so you can get $30 off. Yep, you're welcome. Learning stuff and saving money. Let's do this. So Caballo Negro soon has a big surprise. Yellow Boy says, I looked up in sunrise and my heart raced as if I were still running when Caballo Negro handed me the Yellow Boy rifle and the long-barreled revolver still in its holster that he had taken from the wagon train. His dad then takes him to learn to shoot the rifle, but Yellow Boy wasn't exactly a natural at shooting like he was at becoming a warrior. So Caballo Negro decides to send him off to learn how to shoot from a man named Rufus Peak. He introduces Yellow Boy and he watches to Rufus. And then the book reads, Rufus Pike nodded towards us and said in Spanish something like, 
howdy boys get off them stolen ponies and sit a spell i'll whip us something to eat here in a bit and i love that when i read it because i know that a lot of uh times back then there was a lot of stealing of horses so <laughs> get off those stolen ponies so caballo negro asks rufus to teach his son to shoot to which he asks, what's in it for me you do this, Rufus Peak. You teach Nakayen to shoot the yellow boy rifle fast and straight, close and far, and I'll never come for you. I'll no longer claim rights of trial with you. The Apaches will never raid or attack Rufus Peak if you give water for horses and meat for the trail. Rufus said, come back in three moons and he'll be shooting good as he can and he'll know enough to live with the Indas. So over time, Yellow Boy greatly improved. They also had meaningful conversations and Rufus became a mentor to him, even teaching him bits of Spanish and English. And at one point he asks Rufus a question about going to the reservation. Feel free to talk through that conversation. Well, uh, Yellow Boy really learned a lot from Rufus Pike, not, not just the basics of, uh, of shooting, but uh, how to deal with the, with the uh, white eyes. And one of the questions that they talked about was this, this uh, question about reservations. Why did the Apaches have to put up with the, uh, with the uh, uh, reservations? And so uh, the, the conversation uh, as recorded in, in the book uh, goes something like this. Yellow boy speaks. Rufus Pike, another question. Sure, ask it. This reservation the Indas make for Mescaleros, why must we go there? Rufus spat off the side of the porch and frowned with clenched teeth. You need to go for your own protection. There's not many Indas for you. There, there's too many Indas for you to fight. For every hundred Indas you kill, there's 10,000 to take their place. I know it ain't right for us Americans to come here and just claim the land, but we did. And before that, the Spaniards did too. You want your people to live through more than one or two generations without your tribe disappearing forever? That's the life you got to accept. Life on the reservation and the end of war and rape. That there is what I think. And, you know, this is a heart-wrenching conversation and very telling of the times. They could perhaps hold off the inevitable for a bit, but only for so long, because not even a rifle for every Apache could ward off the endless amount of white men that would be coming. An important moment was about to come to Yellow Boy. The book reads the following from his perspective as he remembers a dream. It was dark. I was running, running hard, running for a long time. Thunder spoke and lightning flashed, and the point of light stretched into a slowly tumbling bar with a golden center until it formed the yellow boy. Wind moaned in a roaring rush, and a voice said, In two days, go to the top of the first mountain above Rufus Pike's Canyon. Take only the yellow boy. Go, and you will save yourself and protect your people. And so after waking from this dream, Yellow Boy heads off to the mountains with the purpose of finding his power. Here's what happened. I dimly saw gray billowing clouds building to the southwest and smiled, my dry lips cracking. I thought, at last they come. 
The thunder people and wind were coming to take me or bless me with my power. The clouds rolled towards me like great running horses. The storm spirits riding them came shouting and shooting their brilliant blinding arrows into the ground and between clouds. The voice of wind came in a thousand whispers, came in myriad shrieks, filling my ears and pushing me backwards, trying to push me off my mountain, trying to kill me. I thought, this rifle is yellow boy, an extension of myself, its power part of me, its power strikes wherever I look. It is part of my power. Instinctively, I grabbed and squeezed the rifle with both hands to avoid losing it in my blindness and recognition, like an electric current flowed from the rifle up my arms and settled in the middle of my chest. My arms shook with the power of the current. When you confront a witch, shoot out its eyes and it will become a blind ghost. Ghosts of blind witches cannot see you, cannot kill you, cannot harm you. You are Yellow Boy. You are killer of witches, their destroyer. Osun leaves you this gift. Do you accept it? From the center of my being, I cried into the storm. Yes, I accept it. Give me this gift. I will have it. And the voice was no more. And there it is. He is now officially deemed Yellow Boy, and he will soon be the killer of witches. So... As the sun lifted above the far horizon, I began my way back down the mountain, back to the house of Rufus Pike, back to my friend and mentor. So after this, Rufus takes Yellow Boy to practice shooting, and he shot better than ever before, precise and perfect. And I wanted to mention something you said earlier, how Rufus really becomes a mentor to him and trying to understand how to finagle the white man's world and there's a story that i left out of here but i can't help but say it uh when yellow boy had gone to town and he saw someone with ammunition and he's like i'm just going to kill him and take his ammunition <laughs> and when uh when rufus finds out what he did he's like you can't do that you're going to cause a war like what are you doing and he's like oh i don't just raid it and take it when i want it so I thought that was such a telling part of that kind of transition from the way they had been doing things to now having to live in this world that was being overtaken by the white man. So tell us what happened next. I had a hard time with this one and actually emailed you that night. I read this section. So listeners, brace yourselves. Well, a, a, a few days uh, after his power came, Yellow Boy had another dream or vision that told him a witch would attack his people. He told, he, when he got up, he told Rufus that he had to return to his people right away and save them from the witch in his dream. And the story here picks up as he's riding for Chaz Camp in the Guadalupe Mountains on the Texas-New Mexico border, about 100 miles east of El Paso. And he says, I saw no other riders on or near the Indi Road from the east. The fear of what I might find at Chaz Camp was like a ghost haunting me, driving me. I watched my eyes uh, lie as I stared at what was left of it. I wished, I wished my eyes lied as I stared at what was left of the camp and felt the sour water from my gut rise in my throat. Bodies of children, women, warriors, and old ones lay scattered around the camp meadow and under the trees. Some shot, some trampled, some with their throats cut, 
all scalped. I slid off my pony and desperately ran from body to body, hoping I would not find my family. But I found my father and never felt more helpless and in so dark a place in my life. I dragged through dragged through brush and fire. His body was so torn and scraped I barely recognized him. His body showed many bullet wounds. I counted five in his front torso, one in the back, and one in his temple. The scalpers had included his ears, on which had hung a silver wire loop with curved turquoise horses in the left ear. When they scalped him, they had cut off his genitals and stuffed them in his mouth and ripped open his belly so his guts spilled out. Without his scalp, his face sagged into a nearly faceless mass, staring at the man who made me, staring at the man who made me and taught me nearly everything I knew about the land, about hunting, about weapons, and about life. I swore in a cold, focused fury and settled in my chest and burned there that the witch who did this to my father and our people would take many days to die cursing the day of his birth and enter the land of the grandfathers blind forever. No, I hated that part. You broke my heart. You're killing me, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, and unfortunately this wasn't a rarity when it came to taking out the enemies back then. And this was a right. typical means of, dealing with enemies for some tribes back then right uh yeah it was it was common with the uh, comanche and other plains tribes who believed by being so horrific and brutal that they would scare the white eyes away that was usually the uh, the brunt of their of their uh, uh, killing and and torture the Apaches rarely did things like that, except for revenge or warning others away. Really daring ones might try to show their power by mutilating a, a body, but if they did, they knew they might get ghost sickness or disease. Their medicine men just couldn't cure. That's so creepy. But again, another time, and <clears throat> this was very typical so so yellow boy goes on through the camp i looked at the remains of everybody in the camp but my mother little brother socorro he watches and a few others i did not find i swore to find them swore to usin to avenge this evil i put my father back together as best i could pulling his face back straight tying his guts back together and laying his genitals back where they belonged i lay him on my horse blanket and wrapped and tied him in it I strained to lift him, and the memory of how he had looked when I found him filled my throat with mesquite thorns. I carried him to a spot in the talus along the west side canyon wall, and laying his body there in a crack in the canyon wall, covered it with stones. The rest of the day I spent burying the other bodies under the rocks in the talus. He then gathers himself and leaves to find any survivors. He finds he watches in his lookout spot, and of course that was a joyous reunion. Yellow boy asks, he watches, tell me what happened. 
They roped him around his feet and a giant with no hair, his body painted black and his head painted to look like a skull, dragged him back and forth through the camp across fire, stones, and cactus while shooting into the teepees, killing many. I hid there and watched what they did. I've never seen such evil. They were worse than the Comanches in the old days when we fought them. Across the great river, Nekayes pay much for the Apache scalps. They even took Caballo Negro's hair with his ears and gave the scalp to the giant, who I have no doubt is a witch. Grandfather, what of the women and children not in the camp? Where are they? When they heard the shooting, they ran back to camp, but kept their heads and stayed out of sight until our enemies left. You must go and help them. He watches, looked in my eyes and nodded. Now we go, yellow boy. They tracked the women, and where did they find them? Uh, he watches in Yellow Boy. Uh, it, it concluded that uh, they must be headed north toward Mescalero, which was uh, just just beginning as a reservation. Mm. They uh, soon found their trail, and they followed it. And uh, Yellow Boy, uh, late in the afternoon, Yellow Boy speaks. I crept through the weeds and brush until I saw the other side of the bend where my pony stared. Two women, Juanita and her mother Maria, knives in hand, squatted behind a big boulder in the bottom of the arroyo. Yellow boy and he watches uh, surprise Maria and Juanita who are relieved and thankful that yellow boy has come with he watches. Uh, and, and the book says, Maria and Juanita led us to a small canyon out of the mountains that emptied into the arroyo. There, Maria stood in the middle of the wash and cupping her hands called like a gamble quail. From up the canyon, five children appeared from the brush as if they were quail. Eight haggard women followed them. That night, Yellow Boy keeps watch on top of the arroyo while the others uh, rest below. And he says, I looked through the Shinacho at the far glow of twinkling yellow light, a star fallen to the ground, and saw an Enda fire with men around it, men with big hats and big guns in their arms, Enda vaqueros, watching cattle. I won't give away too many spoilers here, but while Yellow Boy was keeping watch, Dear Woman comes creeping up on him and tries her Dear Woman ways. You'll have to read the book to find out what happens. <laughs> so Yellow Boy now needs to go after the Inda for horses and supplies. He's searching for someone in their group who can use a sling. So Juanita steps up to the challenge, although Yellow Boy doubted her abilities. However, she showed him that she was highly skilled and Yellow Boy describes that she looked at me with the fire still in her eyes and said, women must be able to take care of themselves. Shall I show you what I can also do with a bow? <laughs> you go, Juanita. So she sat down and turned her face from me to look with a faraway stare at Dear Woman. Dear Woman smiled no more and kept her eyes off of me. <laughs> There's more to that story. It's so great. I love that whole part. Anyway, Yellow Boy and Juanita approached the Vicuero camp he had seen out on the Llano the night before. Um, Llano is the prairie, right? It's the it's the dry prairie. Yeah. Okay. It's not it's not desert, but it's not. Uh, 
not the, really full of grass. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I motioned Juanita to work her way to the corral fence on the side opposite the guard. Her stone struck the vaquero in the back of his head, just below his sombrero brim. Juanita was quick over the corral bars and through the milling horses to reappear like a ghostly shadow at the rails near the gate. My aim with the bow was good, but the smoker was turning his head to say something to the meat cutter when the arrow hit him low and in the neck rather than in his throat where I had aimed. He grabbed the shaft and opened his mouth to yell when a stone struck his forehead and he fell back silent and still. The meat cutter looked up, saw the smoker lying with an arrow in his neck and opened his mouth to bellow an alarm when my arrow hit his windpipe. Clutching its shaft and gurgling blood, he began to stand up from his stool but pitched forward into the fire. Hitting the bucket of cut meat made enough noise to rouse the napping vaqueros. Too late, the stone struck one man behind his right ear and he fell over hard. His revolver clutched in the death grip, his eyes wide and frozen. The other three caught arrows in their hearts and fell back, their hands on the shafts and their bodies trembling in death. I ran forward, my knife drawn, ready to finish off any vaquero still living, but there was no need. Juanita strikes again. What a woman. Eventually, they get to the reservation where the agent, Fred Godfrey, smiling and nodding and with his arms widespread, welcomed our little group through an interpreter, although I understood nearly everything he said. He told us the great father in Washington wanted to help us, that we also should learn to help ourselves, and that we must swear never again to raid or take the war path against the Inda. However, regardless of how glad to see us the agent seemed to be, I didn't trust him. There always seemed to be a lie lurking behind his eyes. Okay, so some shadiness is going on in the reservation. Um, but I wanted to mention a little bit of a spoiler in book two, the guy that Juanita shot at might come back into the picture. So it's kind of interesting. All right. So tell us about the shadiness that was going on in the reservation. Well, it was, it was really outrageous. Uh, the, the agents were there to uh, the, the Apaches. And this is generally true for most uh, tribes there in the Southwest were, were promised that if they uh, if they just went and stayed on a reservation and didn't roam around, that the government would give them supplies and feed them. Well, as it as it turned out, the uh, the agents saw a golden opportunity to steal the government blind, starve the Indians, and make a lot of money. And that's exactly what uh, Godfrey was was into. Um, in the in uh, this story, uh, uh, he uh, uh, sends a, a wagon load of uh, stolen supplies driven by two mescaleros who I'm sure knew what was going on, but uh, they were just following his instructions to, uh, to a warehouse that uh, Godfroy had with another man in Las Cruces, which is which is all true. Uh, hmm. And uh, uh, eventually, a a Kahini uh, uh, Apache who was the Segundo, the, the number two for Victorio, 
was really an, an, a crippled old man who uh, once he got on a horse was uh, was quite the quite the warrior. His name was Nane. And uh, he was, uh, as I say, Victoria's, Victoria's number two, but he was also his son-in-law. Oh, and, okay. Uh, uh, he brought uh, 60 old people, uh, a few women and children uh, with him to the reservation and asked, and asked that he be allowed to uh, stay there. And uh, Godfrey, uh, uh, welcomed Nick, welcomed them in. He was he was really happy to see them because uh, more uh, more people there meant uh, more supplies that that he could steal. Nane was was clever. Uh, he went into the reservation without the warriors who were riding with him, and he basically had them come over the, uh, the ridge that uh, uh, was on the backside of the reservation. Uh, called uh, that helped form a, a great canyon called the Rinconada. Uh, and uh, uh, Godfroy didn't have a clue that those that those warriors were there. Uh, they hunted as they as they uh, needed and came and went as they pleased. Uh, a few months later, after Nane arrived, uh, the, the two Mescalero uh, men were making another drive with uh, uh, stolen supplies to the warehouse in Las Cruces. And suddenly, uh, Nane's warriors appeared and stopped the wagon on the trail uh, out of the mountains, told the Mescalero drivers to run back to the reservation, and took the wagon load of supplies back to the reservation and distribute them to the, uh, to the villages in which they were due. Uh, and of course he kept a few, uh, he kept a few for, uh, uh, for his people. Godfrey knew that if the settlers learned what he was doing, they'd want to hang him ah. uh, for, uh, for giving the uh, Mescaleros a good reason to go to war. And uh, he pretty quickly took off and wasn't seen again by the uh, by the Mescaleros. Run away. Okay, so then Agent Godfrey is then replaced by Agent Russell, yeah. and he was just as bad as Godfrey, right? Pretty much, uh, pretty much so. Although, uh, uh, unlike Godfrey, who was flexible and and adaptable to. Uh, uh, new situations on the uh, uh, on the reservation. Uh, Russell was a strictly by the book man, and it wound up uh, getting a lot of people uh, uh, killed. Uh, he was a he was a bureaucrat, and the army had been trying for nearly two years to get Victorio to settle on a reservation. And since Nane was already there, he came in and said he wanted to settle on, on the Mescalero Reservation. Uh, Russell welcomed him, but he wouldn't give him and his men any supplies until some bureaucrat in the BIA uh, said he could and uh, transmitted it to him in writing. Well, uh, how long can you go without supplies? Uh, 
while you wait for some bureaucrat to uh, to give you permission to live, you know. So after a while, uh, he left in a rage, and the border country went up in flames and, uh, and killing. There's a there's a funny tale about when uh, Victorio uh, left and went over to see uh, Russell and uh, uh, wanted wanted to know why he was doing this to him. And Russell, who had a, a long uh, billy goat kind of beard, uh, said, well, I'm just following the rules. And one of uh, Victorio's men grabbed Russell by the beard and, and drug him around the room while Russell was yelling at the interpreter, uh, talk pretty to him, talk pretty to him. And uh, uh, Victorio finally told the guy to let him go and they, and they, they took off that's awesome i didn't know that story and what's interesting is knowing what's going to happen later i think it's in book two you kind of see how this whole thing just kind of snowballed yeah. into craziness right. right wow ah history so interesting so by the way yellow boy does marry juanita listeners you'll have to read the book to find out about his courting her and the Apache rituals, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in book two. But coming into the picture is the Apache chief, Victorio, as you mentioned. His charisma pulled fighting men to, to him like iron to a magnet. Victorio was dangerous to both the Inda, murdering and raiding across the, the Apacheria that covered New Mexico, Arizona, and most of northern Mexico, and the Shisinda which is what the Apache called themselves, as you mentioned before. So Yellow Boy believed Victorio wouldn't stay long after they gathered some Mescalero warrior. And as Yellow Boy tells it, when Victorio and Nane, is that how you said it? Nane, yeah. Nane <laughs> rode off to Nane's Rinconada Canyon. I knew for certain Delgadito, Ka, and Kodo planned to join Victorio if he left the reservation, which they did, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, in fact, uh, about about uh, twenty or thirty uh, Mescalero warriors went with uh, uh, Victorio uh, for the thrill of it. Hmm. Uh, as as uh, Yellow Boy told us uh, told the story uh, in the season of large fruit that would be late August. Victorio learned that the Grant County authorities had issued indictments against him for horse stealing and murder and might come for him. And as luck would have it, a few days after uh, Victorio heard about the Grant County indictments, he saw Judge Warren Bristol, Albert Fountain, who just happened to be Henry Fountain's father. <laughs> I was going to say, there's got to be a connection, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And several others he recognized crossed the reservation on a hunting and fishing trip. They didn't care uh, anything about about uh, trying to capture uh, Victorio, but the site convinced him that they were coming to arrest him. And the site, and despite pleas from Mescalero chiefs, uh, uh, Doc Blazier, uh, he and uh, Delgado. Ka and Kodo jumped the reservation in early September to leave a trail of blood and murder across southern New Mexico. 
they're just, it seems like they're, some of those warriors are young and ready to get out there and, you know, make big change and go after the bad guys. I mean, is that the correct interpretation? Uh, yeah, I think so. You, you're starting to see glimmers here of the, of the problem that the Apaches were going to face on the reservation. Uh, you know, you, you could have, uh, have women have their, uh, uh, hahe times, regardless of whether they were at war or peace or raiding or not. Mm. But how in the world were, were they going to uh, uh, have the uh, have the boys declared men if they couldn't go raiding or uh, become novitiates? And uh, it was the real problem across uh, uh, all of the Apache. Uh, bands. In fact, it, it got uh, uh, Geronimo in trouble. And he was a, a, a Chiricahua. Yeah, so there's that side of the story that kind of helps you understand it a little bit better. So Victorio and his shenanigans ended up causing issues for the Mescaleros. So Yellow Boy heard some men talking saying, I was over to Fort Stanton not long ago talking to a sergeant friend of mine. He's claiming that the army thinks old Victorio is getting men, guns, and horses from the Indians on the res here, and they're going to put a stop to it by taking their horses and guns away. Can you believe it? Why, the Rio Tolerosa will run red with blood. The Mescaleros need their guns and horses to hunt and defend themselves. They ain't going to part with their guns. Well, things started coming to a boiling point, and on April 12th, 1880, Yellow Boy looked on from the watch point as the army, as well as the Chiricahua Apache scouts, marched into the reservation and took several women from the camp, including Juanita, dear woman, their mothers, and others. The story behind this infiltration was described by Yellow Boy. I knew Russell had acted like a fool for refusing to bend the rules in last year's season of large fruit to give Victoria rations without written approval from Washington. His fear of doing something for which Washington bureaucrats might criticize him had enraged Victoria and started a war that left southern New Mexico burning and many ranchers, miners, and sheep herders slaughtered. So this goes back to what you were saying earlier, too. So when you're talking Mescalero Apache against the Bluecoats, there's no comparison. But the Apache were better trackers, strategists, survivors, and fighters. But Chiricahua Apache versus Mescalero Apache is also another story, right? Yeah, there were there were significant differences. The the Mescaleros were uh, warriors and fighters, but they weren't. Uh, uh, I don't think quite in the league with the Chiricahuas. Although, oh, really? Ethnologists say that. Uh, the Chiricahua and the Mescalero are are very uh, similar in customs and and uh, life ways, but uh, uh, I think every every uh, Apache uh, uh, that was not a Chiricahua uh, viewed the Chiricahua as as uh, uh, the real deadly uh, ah. warriors, and they were. Uh, uh, deadly fighters, and until they surrendered about eight years later uh, in this story, they were leaders in the war against the White Eyes. The Mescaleros had a good thing going on their reservation, and their chiefs didn't want another war with the White Eyes. 
And so uh, okay. they did everything they could to uh, to discourage those warriors going with uh, Victorio. Hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. I didn't realize the Chiricahua were really known for their being even greater warriors technically than the Mescalero. Mm -hmm. So Yellow Boy was off to rescue the women along with his fellow warriors, Closin and Bielachiesi. Help me and our listeners know how to pronounce that, Michael. Well, you're you're asking a bad reference, but I call him Bila Chizzy. Bila Chizzy. Okay. So he formulates a plan where they'd send one of their own into the camp to join the women. And then what happens next? Well, keep in mind what's what's going on here is that uh, Colonel Hatch has brought in uh, literally hundreds of soldiers from many different directions, and they have forced the uh, the Mescaleros into one big camp around the uh, around the agency, and they have managed to uh, uh, get all the women and children that were in the uh, Yellow Boy camp. Uh, perfectly minding their business uh, in this in this place, and so uh, uh, the the uh, thing that they felt they had to do was uh, to get their get their children back. And once they did, and that's that's kind of a long story itself. Once they did, they uh, decided to uh, head for uh, Wolves Camp, Mexico. Now, Huo was was probably uh, at that time the premier war chief of any of the Apache tribes, mm. uh, and they they stopped on their way to rest at Rufus Pike's place. And right. The old boy was smart enough to know that the army would send some scouts after the women and children that had left, and anyone else that was with them. Uh, and Yellow Boy and his uh, warriors tried to intercept them, but the scouts never came the way that they thought that they would. And when they returned to Rufus Pike's place, the scouts had taken over their camp. Hmm. Keeping watch, they spotted uh, uh, six uh, blue coat Chiricahua Apaches, six scouts. One of them was named Soldado Fierro. Don't forget that name, y'all. Yeah, means uh, fierce soldier. Ah, uh, and uh, Yellow Boy describes how he how he paced uh, uh, before the nearest fire and stared into the dark, looking from one side of the of the canyon that that uh, Rufus Pike lived in to the other, cocking his head to catch any unusual sound when he uh, which he thought he heard. As Yellow Boy tells it. Uh, before Soldado Fierro seated his rifle butt against his shoulder, I shouted, hold or die. He slowly lowered his rifle, looking over his shoulder and nodded back to the other scouts to do the same. I speak true. Lay down your rifles and pistols and no harm comes. We'll talk. Choose to fight and you'll die. Choose now. He laid down his rifle, drew his long-barreled colt from its holster, and laid it down. The other scouts followed his example. I said, you wear blue coats. You've come to kill us because the blue coat chief wars with the Victorio. 
we don't ride with Victorio. We don't war against Inda. We're going to the far blue mountains and won't come back. Go back to the blue coat chief and say, you didn't find us. Leave and you'll live. Stay and you'll die. Soldado Fierro crossed his arms and stared back into the dark. He said through clenched teeth, we'll go. We won't track you to the Blue Mountains. Soldado Fierro smiled slightly, shrugged, and took a step back, and then glancing toward Juanita, turned in slow motion to reach for his guns, which were lying by his moccasins. A soft slapping sound, like a fist striking an open palm, broke the stillness. He grunted, collapsed to his knees, and fell face forward into the sound, into the sand without another sound. So wow, Juanita is a boss. I doubt Dear Woman would have been able to take Soldaldo down. <laughs> right? right? No way. Dear Woman's too busy in the bushes. So anyway, they made their way to camp of Nenni Apache Chief Wo, who welcomed them. And they told him of the witch killing their people and how Yellow Boy would take his rifle and kill the witch. So Wo challenged Yellow Boy, thinking he was too young and inexperienced of a warrior to do such a thing. So he basically said, oh, yeah, try me. And y'all wouldn't believe what test he gave to Yellow Boy. They brought out a five or six-year-old little girl who carried a gourd in her hand. And the book reads, the whimpering child, her short legs churning, ran behind her, pulling on the rope with both hands to keep from being choked. So Woe said, I took this slave a month, a moon ago on my last raid against the Nakayes. I thought maybe if she lived one day, she will become one of us and give a man sons, which we need. But she will not stop her noise. Now I think soon I'll have to cut her throat. She'll never be an Apache if she can't be silent. It's not funny, but it's just... Anyway, so the slave will run for the tree. Shoot the gourd off the child without a scratch from your bullet before she reaches the tree. And I will agree that Usin has given you power to kill witches and leave them blind in the land of the grandfathers. The woman kicked the child's legs out from under her, knocking her on her back. The wind knocked out of her lungs. The child tried to yell, but choking for air made nothing but a sucking, wheezing sound. The woman pulled the chair, child's hair up off the sides of her head and used hair and string to tie the gourd in place on top of her head. The child got up and ran toward the tree in an awkward, wobbling gait that made her path crooked and unpredictable. The gourd tied in her hair was an impossible target, difficult to see, bouncing and jiggling, swaying back and forth as she ran. I brought the rifle's butt plate to my shoulder, sighted, and without hesitating, fired. The child was within 10 yards of the tree when the gourd exploded, showering chunks of gourd, pulp, and seeds all over her. The men who watched grunted in wonder and shook their heads in disbelief. And <laughs> woe turned to me. Truly, Usin has given you a powerful gift. Come to my lodge when the shadows are shortest. Then I'll say to you what I know of the witch you hunt. Um. Yeah, so what the... Heck, that poor little girl. <laughs> All right. So Yellow Boy, with his newfound respect from Woe, had a sit down to hear what Woe had to say. Why don't you read that passage to us? Yeah. Uh, Yellow Boy. He, uh, sorry. Woe is speaking to Yellow Boy. A few years ago, I learned that a Nakagi, maybe part Comanche, 
called Sangre del Diablo, Blood of the Devil, was a brujo, a witch, and a scalp hunter. The merchants in Casas Grandes had a trick they liked to use on Apaches. They offered us many gifts when they asked us to come in to Casa Grandes for peace discussions and presents so we'd leave them alone in our raids. At the meetings, they gave us whiskey from a barrel that had no bottom to make us too drunk to defend ourselves. And then they filled as many of us, and then they killed as many of us as possible before the rest ran away. We loved the powerful whiskey of the Nakiaves so much that we took the bait twice in the span of 15 years and, and saw the slaughter of many warriors. I once ran into the witch with the sun's glow behind him, a giant, naked man, his arms up, a human skull in each hand, strange, swirling signs tattooed on his torso, tattoos that looked like fire around his wrists and up his arms, his legs painted red, his face black with touches of white to make it look like a skull, and an owl. Death in the flesh, its wings spread and hover, ready to fly, perched on his shoulder. We stared at each other for a long moment before the figure said, I am Sangre del Diablo. I hold in my hands the spirits of death. If I curse you, you'll get sick and die. Come to my land and you and all your netney will surely die. I'll show you the way. I'll show you the way to his hacienda. We'll leave when the sun comes tomorrow. Sticking out my chin, I said through clenched teeth, show the way. I love this. Mic drop, show me the way. <laughs> Take me to him. He sounds really evil and creepy. So... Uh, the next part cracks me up. Juanita said, Woe sent a slave. She is young, cries often, and stinks of gourd. I'll keep her and teach her to work for me and show her our ways. So I love Juanita. She's such a good person. She's a good shot, and she's willing to take in the stinky gourd kid. So it seems like big scary things are about to happen with the witch. So do tell us what happened as they approached the camp of the witch as we bite our fingernails. So uh, they they uh, found a place to uh, to camp and hide outside the uh, the place where the where the witch was, which was on a uh, on a uh, uh, a large pond and and a creek. And uh, they they uh, crept around to uh, to watch what was going on the night that that uh, it's. It started, and uh, the, the book says uh, hollow log drums pounded a steady thumping rhythm that made it easy to lose all sense of time and space. Around the flames, tall and graceful with long, shiny black hair and braids that often reached to their waist, danced Indians of a tribe I had never seen before. Scattered among the circle of Comanches were drunken Nakii, Vaqueros, probably Banditos, 
who laughed and cursed as they staggered around the fire, poorly imitating the smooth Comanche dance uh, steps and gyrations. All the dancers held their right hands high in the firelight and shook scalps of shiny black hair. Standing in front of an ornately carved chair, painted in yellow and black, arms crossed, and watching the dancers was the tallest, biggest Nakiyi, or perhaps Nakiyi, Indio mix I had ever seen. The drum stopped, and the men grew quiet and stood to face the giant. He rose out of the chair and, raising his arms, said in a deep voice they could all hear, I sangro sangre del diablo, call the witch's ghost for my power. The ghost will fill me and guide us. Soon we'll go. Be ready. We'll take many scalps, slaves, cattle, and horses. Take your pleasures now. The trail leads far. The men raised their arms and howled like wolves and the women made long, yodeling screams like hunting mountain lions. All that noise made the hair on the back of my neck tingle. Near dawn, when the fire was growing low, the giant, bleary-eyed from drinking too much, pointed at a woman and yelled for her to bring him his sack. Grinning, he untied the top and ran his arm down into the bag and retrieved a scalp. Long dried, perhaps even specially cured. Its black hair was long and it filled his fist as he held it up and howled like a wolf and shook it. The scalp still had it, had the ears attached and from the left ear hung pieces of turquoise on a silver wire like Caballo Negro War. Yellow boy goes back to the others. He watches pale, his skin gray in the early morning shade, said when the moon was high, shining straight down on the lake, I heard an owl call my name. Three times it called. The witch is trying to kill me. That witch knows we're here. He kills us in a bad way. I say we go away and like, whoa, leave him alone. But the men didn't change their plans and decided to attack uh, men who the witch had sent to Casas Grandes. So Closin and Bilachezi ran for the ambush spot and less than two miles from where he watches rode off with their horses. I know the sweat must have already covered their bodies after running in that hot, brilliant sunlight when they crawled under the blankets covered with dirt and sand and waited. Their rifles cocked, they waited, barely breathing, ignoring the thick, fiery air scorching their throats and filling their lungs. Closen kept his ear pressed to the ground, listening for approaching horses. He held up four fingers to indicate four horses and made the sign for a wagon. They said the shots, barely distinguishable, they were so close together, they knocked the vaquero off his horse and the wagon driver off his seat. And of course, they were successful in killing the men. So this is such an interesting strategy. Was this typical for the Apaches to hide in the ground under blankets covered in dirt? Yeah, as I've said, the, the standard Apache method of attack and fighting was ambush. 
It was the safest way to fight. Very rarely did they charge head on into an enemy and their ambush uh, techniques required them to hide in places that their enemies would dream, uh, would never dream they would be. Sometimes that meant digging a shallow hole and hiding under a dirt covered blanket. Oh, it'd be so hot out there too, though. Yeah. I can't imagine. But I loved how stealthy they were and their training that they had been given by their fathers, elders, and all that was, it really made them so good at what they did. So far, things are going well, but Sangre del Diablo soon figures out that his camp is being watched and soon takes Yellow Boy and he watches Prisoner. Yellow Boy finds himself in a pickle, knocked out by the Comanches and with a tremendous headache. Segundo, who was second in command, was standing there, his upper torso naked, covered in black paint up to his neck, his head now hairless, covered in white, with black paint used around his eyes and cheekbones to make his head look like a floating skull, stood grinning at me like death back from the grave. He's then led out to where he could join. He watches. And what did he see? Uh, there were there were two poles planted in the ground facing each other, uh, and in the middle was a, was a fire. Uh, and the, the poles had a, had a cross piece on their top, and they were basically uh, crosses. Uh, uh, stools stood against the poles, and he watches, forced to climb up on it, managed to rise up and stand with his back to the pole. One of his uh, painted keepers climbed a ladder, leaned against the backside of the pole, and pulled he watches arms straight out along the cross piece and tied them with pieces of wet rawhide at his shoulder, elbow, and hand joints. He watches face showed no emotion. His eyes staring at his captors, calm, unafraid. I was tied like he watches on the opposite pole. The drum stopped and all voices in the crowd grew silent. The only sounds, the hiss and pop of the fire giving off the tart, smooth, soothing smell of burning cedar. A, giant, a naked giant lifted his arms high, a human skull in each hand, strange swirling symmetrical signs in black tattooed all over his torso that disappeared into orange and red flames pointed, painted around his waist, and long streams of red and white flames covered his big muscular arms. His legs were covered in red paint from his breech cloth crotch all the way to his beaded moccasins. The swirls on his body grew steadily wider and more intricate until they converged at his shoulders and merged with black glistening paint covering his bald head. A huge owl, its wings slightly extended for balance and a leather hood covering its eyes, stood on the specter's shoulder. Its talons dug into a leather roll, a thick leather roll held in place with straps across the specter's chest and back, buckled together in gleaming silver and connected to the, eye, to the owl's silver chain leg leash. I can just picture this scene. It's like creepy. 
So the giant unleashes the owl, and then your book reads, In a few seconds, the outstretched talons of the great owl swooped out of the night and stabbed into the eyes and face of heat watches. He jerked his head from side to side, trying to throw off the owl, as the raptor tore at his face and eyes and made sharp thrust with its beak at the back of his neck near the base of his skull, ripping and tearing flesh. Watching death come to my grandfather, I strained in cold fury against the rawhide holding me, vowing the witch's death and asking Usin for his promised power. He watches, blinded, blood streaming from many rips in his face and eyes, bowed his head and struggled no more. The owl with its great beak tearing at the base of his skull had finally broken his neck and released him to the land of the grandfather's. The owl hopped to he watch's shoulder and facing Sangre del Diablo screeched his kill with outspread wings. This is so tragic. Listeners, are you devastated like I am? And he watches had this vision which came true. So I noticed there's a lot of talk in the book about blinding the enemies, taking out their eyes. Was this a part of some tribe's culture? Uh, blinding enemies before they were killed was unusual, but not rare. The only the only way a blind person could survive in the wilderness was to have his people around him to help him. And if there were none to help, starvation, wandering off cliffs, predatory animals were all hard ways to die. Oh. So what happens next to Yellow Boy after watching his grandfather die this horrible death? The, the witch had not found Closin and Dila Cheesy, and they, uh, they saved Yellow Boy from the cross after the witch and his people went to bed. Uh, Closin on a ladder against the back of the pole, uh, and this is, this is how the book tells it, uh, slashed my wrists free, cut the rawhide at my elbows and my arms. Numb, they flop down by my sides, and Yellow Boy falls to the ground. He stared at me, shook his head in disbelief, helped me up, and motioned to be a cheesing to bring the body of he watches and follow them. Yellow Boy tells Closin, which calls the second chief Segundo. He sleeps somewhere in the hacienda. I must have my rifle back to kill the witch. Closin finds the rifle, but is discovered. And the book reads, Segundo ran for the gates, but Closin separated from a black hall entranceway and swung his rifle like a club into the back of his head. He sprawled forward, landing hard, face down on the walkway leading to the gates. Uh, the yellow boy flying from his hands. Closin uh, had actually uh, found the yellow boy, but the Segundo had it, and he was trying to figure out how to get it away from him. Uh, and the book reads, Closin drove his knee down between Segundo's uh, shoulder blades, drew his knife, grabbed his hair to yank his head back, but the hair came off with a weak tearing sound, braids and all. Closin stuffed the hair in his belt as I ran to the yellow boy, picked it up and sighed with relief and whispered my rifle. Segundo blood smeared over his face, a knife in his hand, 
screaming and ghost raising Comanche war cry ran for closing. On top of the command uh, of the compound wall, I rose to my knees and whipped the Henry to my shoulder and bellowed, Segundo! Reflexively, Segundo looked toward me and a snapping boom, his left eye disappeared and his head snapped back. His momentum took him another step, his head turning toward the sound of the rifle, his right eye wide open suddenly disappeared in another crack of thunder leaving only a black socket and the remaining backside of his head disappeared in a spray of blood, bone, and brains. He fell backwards and lay still on that three yards from closing. But where was Sangre del Diablo? Where was he? That's a good question. Comanche howls came from somewhere amid the horses, which ran out of the corral and pounded straight for us. Dragging Closen, who had been badly wounded be between us, we ran for the compound gates. <clears throat> Howling like specters out of hell, two Comanches and the witch rolled up from their horses' necks, where they had been hanging. Bullets from the Comanches' rifles raised like plumes of dust around us, and the ground shook from the pounding hooves of the horses running for us. So the Apache were horse people, but the Comanche were as well. Um, and on that note, you know, we talked about the Chiricahua versus the Mescalero Apache and um, how the, the Chiricahua tended to be even greater warriors and, and greater skills. What about the Comanche versus the Apache? Well, you, you, you have to realize that the Comanches were true horse warriors. They fought while they rode. Mm, amazing. The the Apaches were were mounted infantry. In other words, they didn't they they looked at a horse as a tool, not as a measure of wealth like the uh, Comanches did. And so when an Apache fought, he usually uh, rode a horse to the uh, to the engagement and then got off standing on the ground. The Comanches never did that. They stayed on their horses. They were true uh, uh, cavalry. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm just amazed at the skill of these people on their horses, the Comanche and the Apache, but especially the Comanche. So anyway, Closen would have held them back. So like a hero, he told Bila Chesi and Yellow Boy to go onward without him since he was wounded. So why are you doing this to me, Michael? I liked Closen. He was so loyal. Yeah, he was a good man. Yeah. Uh, the the Apaches uh, believed in what they called a, a good death, which meant that a warrior died showing courage and protecting the people. Closen and he watches had had good deaths on both accounts. Uh, Yellow Boy tells of their, uh, of their burial in a canyon on the way to, to Woe's camp, or I should say on the way back to Woe's camp. Uh, we carried the bodies of he watches and closened to the place by the trees. We led the ponies of he watches and closened close to the graves. We positioned them where we wanted them to fall and then killed them with our knives quickly and mercifully. He watches was getting too old and slow for rage and war, but he wouldn't part with it 
when uh, we had left the witch. Now he took it to the happy land, and Socorro would not grieve for him every time she saw it. And speaking of Socorro, again, that's he watches wife. They get back to the camp, weary with losses and only partially successful as they still hadn't killed the witch. And Yellow Boy now has to tell Socorro that he watches went to the happy land. She raised her chin and looked in my eyes. I hear you, grandson. I go to the other side of the mountain and mourn him. Go to your woman's teepee. Think of me no more. She turned from me and disappeared into the trees. I sighed and watched her go, knowing I would never see her again. So this killed me. It's so bittersweet, but but there was some good news in the camp. So tell us about that. Yeah, so so after returning, Yellow Boy sees Juanita and says, you look different. I can tell you hide something from you. <laughs> she coyly bent uh, her head to look at her moccasin and then looking in my eyes, smiled and said, uh, next season of Little Eagles. I think you will have a son. Aww. My eyes sparkled as I held her and whispered, and you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, some good news. Yeah. But we still have the issue of the witch escaping, and Yellow Boy wasn't yet able to avenge his father. So the book says, I found woe on his blanket under the tall pines. He waved for me to join him. After I sat down, he said, a, a membrano warrior with a message from Victorio came in last night. He told me a story I know you'll want to hear. He said he is hidden in the bosque resting his horse on the Rio Casa Grande, Grandes when he saw a horse or maybe a giant witch riding with two Comanches wipe out three wagons filled with women and children on the wagon road to uh, Casa Grandes. A baby survived, and the witch didn't let the Comanches kill it. He took it and said he was leaving it with a woman in Casa Grandes. They burned the bodies with the wagons, and the warrior heard the witch say the stupid Nakayes would believe the Apaches did it, even though the horses had been killed. He told the Comanches to go to the camp of Elias, and he would meet them there in three moons. So Woe crossed his arms and shook his head. Elias is Apache. He has the main camp on the western side of the Blue Mountains, north of the pass the Nakayes called El Paso Popito. Sometimes he goes north and crosses the border when he can get enough banditos to ride with him or when Geronimo sends word. In four days, I will send a warrior to show you the way to the camp of El Elias. I saw the faint smile of breaking on Woe's lips. And New Usen was giving me another chance to destroy the witch. And there ends our story for now. Wait, what? You're leaving us with a cliffhanger. And what's the deal with that's, this baby? The witch didn't let the Comanches kill. <laughs> You're killing me, man. <laughs> you just have to read the second book, Blood of the Devil. Uh -huh. What happens in the clash between... Uh, uh, the Witch, Sangre del Diablo, and the third book, The Last Warrior, to learn what happens to the child. I haven't read the third one yet. So I'm still, and I'm only mostly through Blood of the Devil. So, yeah. oh my gosh, it's really hard to put down too. My husband's been on a two-week trip. And in the at, at night, I've been sitting in front of the fireplace reading this stuff and I'm all alone and I'm like, oh, this is so creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so good 
So, okay, fine then. Listeners, you don't want to miss part two, Blood of the Devil. So stay tuned. And Michael, thanks again for joining me and for sharing this suspenseful, heartbreaking, and informative story, Killer of Witches, The Life and Times of Yellow Boy. It's truly been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Cookie. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.